Good morning. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew 24. We're kind of chugging along in our study on the Olivet Discourse as part of our eschatology study, how I think things will unfold in the last days. And uh, so we've been making our way through this uh, through this teaching that Jesus gave, which was a response to some questions that the disciples asked regarding the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, as well as his second coming and the end of the age. Uh, we have mentioned before that you'll also want to be reading um, uh, Mark 12 and also Luke 21, uh, Mark 13, I should say, and Luke 21 in regard to this, uh, their recording of this same sermon. Now, Luke's is somewhat different. It includes, uh, really, of the three, it's the only one that includes uh, Jesus' answer to the first question, which has to do with the destruction of the temple. And uh, there's also uh, additional encouragements there that, uh, I think my microphone might be a little far away. Is that a little better, hopefully? Um, some um, discussion about um, encouragements of, of, of preparedness and those kinds of things. Um, but we tend to look at Matthew 24 as, as a primary uh, source text when it comes to this uh, sermon. So uh, that being said, we're going to pick up today where we left off last time. We finished in verse 28. And we're going to today go ahead and move from uh, verses 29 through 35 uh, as we make our way through here. So, uh, continuing on, Jesus said, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, of course, we see (coughs) the description of this. In um, in the trumpet and bowl judgments, we see um, the the final really decimating of the worldly system. In that, um, personified by the Babylonian, the Babylon system, the city of Babylon that will exist in that time, but really the pervasive system uh, uh, of globalism that takes place from there is ultimately brought down. Uh, both that, but also physically, the oceans are struck in their totality as opposed to uh, in the bowl judgments, as opposed to in the trumpet judgments where they are, uh, a third of them is struck. Uh, the freshwater, a third of it is struck in the trump, uh, trumpet judgments. In the, in the bowl judgments, it, the rest of it is turned to blood. Um, there is, uh, whereas a third of mankind is struck in the trumpet judgments, in the culmination of the bowl judgments, we see the coming of Christ where this rebellion against him ultimately results in the throwing of the the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire and the killing of all of those, uh, the death of all of those who have uh, aligned themselves with him as Christ comes and strikes them down with the word of his mouth. And so um, so we see these cataclysms taking place both in the heavens with the uh, with the, the sun, moon, and stars. We see this just destruction of the earth all taking place here. Uh, all these things being shaken, uh, as it says again in verse 29. Verse 30, by the way, uh, I should say, you know, in regard to this, we also see not just in the book of Revelation, but if you consider passages like Joel uh, chapter 2, verses, you know, typically we think of verses uh, um, 20 and on, I think, as dealing with the last days. But really in verse 10, we see this description similar to this, also Isaiah 34 as well. So verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Uh, Now the sign, what does that mean? Is there a sign that indicates his coming? Uh, The word there that is used uh, is seen by some to indicate uh, not a sign so much like we saw in Revelation 12, the sign of the woman with the sun, moon, and, and stars, or uh, or elsewhere the sign like the dragon and all of these kinds of things, but rather what is seen here by many is the idea of the banner. 
Uh, There is a trumpet that will come. There is a banner that may be in view here as Christ comes. The banner or the standard of the tribes of Israel is likely what's in view here. The idea that he is coming uh, sort of with the banner of collecting together the house of Israel at this point. Again, chapter 24 of, of Matthew, the Olivet Discourse, uh, Mark 13, Luke 21, deals with Israel. It is not dealing with the church per se. And so to, to, to imagine that what's in view here would be very, very apparent to Jews would make perfect sense. Uh, they operated in the Old Testament as they wandered the wilderness and as the tribes coalesced together in that, each tribe had its banner. And then uh, three tribes, uh, groups, four groups of three tribes would often gather together under the banner of the head tribe of those three and those kinds of things. And so there's likely a picture like that in view here, that when Christ is returning, he is coming with the banner, the banner or the standard of, the, of, of his chosen people in that which means it may be a banner that includes all of the uh, em- uh, elements of all the banners of the na- of of, <laughs> of the various tribes in Israel or maybe some unique new banner that somehow they all fall under uh, kind of a thing it's uh, it'll be interesting uh, what that will look like but again he comes with this uh, the sign of the son of man or the banner uh, again likely will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, again, this would follow because when the nation of Israel or the tribes would gather together and go to war, the banner would kind of go with them in that. And so here we see the king of Israel coming to return with the standard in hand, and the nations recognize now that they that he has come for war. And that's exactly what he's come for this time. No longer is he coming uh, as the meek and mild uh, teacher on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and he's no longer even just uh, the miracle worker and the healer and such that they had seen, but he's much more like the the Lord uh, who flipped tables over in, in, in the temple and that kind of thing because this house of prayer had been turned into a den of thieves. Well, here, this same righteously indignant king is coming not just to the, the temple, to his house, as it were, but to the world that belongs to him, and he's coming to take it back. And so he comes with the standard. The nations recognize now, as he comes in the heavens in, in Revelation chapter 14, uh, 19, which is what's in view here, uh, he comes with the banner and the, the nations mourn. Um, uh, also, by the way, I should mention that another kind of mourning is also going on here. In uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it talks about how the house of Israel will mourn over um, this coming, uh, the coming of their Messiah. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they'll mourn over him uh, like one mourns over his son and this kind of thing. They'll recognize the error of their ways in rejecting him the first time, and they will grieve over that mistake as they see him coming. Now, of course, in that time, um, we see that uh, in the tribulation period, the great tribulation, there are believers in Christ of both Jewish and Gentile uh, um, you know, ethnicity, a background in that. Um, Paul talks about in Romans 11 how all Israel will be saved. Well, during this period of time, after the Antichrist has persecuted Israel and has wiped out, as Zechariah earlier says, two-thirds of, of the nation of Israel, um, the third that remains will enter into the millennial kingdom. They will be saved and move into the millennial kingdom. Uh, on top of that, there are Gentiles that will also have been saved during that period of time. Uh, I guess 
in, in part responding to a question that came up about, you know, are they the church or are they not, these Gentiles that come to be saved? Um, in, in, in a sense, they, they are saved like those in the church who were raptured previously, although we tend to make distinctions between these groups so that we can understand who's in view. Um, they're more inserted distinctions in some ways, just so we can, again, differentiate. Um, but the church is generally referring to those believers that prior to the rapture have come to faith and are raptured away. Um, those saints, those believers, who those who come to faith and become believers during the tribulation period are saints and that they are set apart. They're clearly elect because God you know, chose them and such. But and, and technically, they're believers like the church is. But from a just drawing distinctions from timing and that kind of thing, we tend to refer to these uh, under terms like tribulation saints and that kind of thing. Um, Israel, of course, you know, in terms of the covenants in that, Israel is experiencing the fulfilling of the covenant promises of the kingdom and this kind of thing as well. So we, we make distinctions here just to understand different people groups who are in mind during this period of time. But we don't, want, we don't want to believe that somehow people are saved differently. Uh, for example, um, and without trying to get on too big of a thing, um, when we talk about dispensationalism or the discussion of the various covenants that we see in Scripture and in the ways that God deals with mankind, if I can borrow from uh, the way a friend puts it, the economies through which that uh, God deals with the peoples, um, if we look at just the two main covenants, the idea of the covenant, uh, the old covenant and the new covenant, the idea of the covenant that was given to Israel, fulfilled ultimately in the, the promises of the kingdom and this kind of thing. Um, the mistake is sometimes made when we discuss this question of covenants that somehow people were saved in a different way under old covenant or covenants in the Old Testament than they were under the new covenant. Um, in the Old Testament, well, Paul, let's start with, says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In his discussions on the law and its place, we come to realize, again, from Romans, also Galatians, we realize that the law never saved anybody. Not because the law isn't perfect or beautiful and lofty. It is all of those things. But unfortunately, for people who are inherently sinful, dead in sin, incapable of keeping the law, for all of its beauty and splendor and purity, the law is really a death sentence to us because we cannot obey it. Therefore, it cannot save us. Or better, maybe a way to put it is we can't be saved by it because we're incapable of following it. So, like Paul makes the argument both in Romans and in Galatians, Abraham, who really is the father of the Jewish people to whom the law was given, was actually <coughs> was actually saved by faith. Uh, he believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so, uh, salvation by faith has always been the means of salvation, and it even, in Paul's argument, preceded the law. And so, therefore, we understand the law not as a means of being saved, but rather as a as a as a uh, a list of of condemnation against us. It also represents, um, you know, both the the standard of God that we can't keep. And then the recognition of our inability to keep it causes us to say, well, then what must I do to be saved? And ultimately, it becomes a matter of putting our faith and trust in Christ. So when we talk about covenantal people and that kind of a thing, the Jews lived under that covenant, but none of them were saved by that covenant. Um, maybe it's worth pointing out that there have been teachers of late uh, who may have changed their perspective on it, so I'm not going to name their names necessarily because they may not still hold that view. But some pretty prominent prophecy and Bible teaching uh, Bible teachers and that 
made the point have have made the point along the way that Israel does not need to come to Christ in order to be saved. They don't need to put their faith in their Messiah Jesus to be saved because they are under a covenant, uh, you know, the old covenant and that, and so therefore they're saved automatically or something. Something to that effect, and that's just purely wrong. Um, anyone who was saved in the Old Testament was saved by faith, um, having something to do with the coming promises of God in that, but truly by, by faith. Um, in the New Testament, we see that faith ultimately clearly distinctly anchored to the person of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus himself, and his finished work on the cross. If we, under, if we don't understand that, then we come up with some very bizarre uh, ideas in regard to salvation and the people groups and how they're saved. Um, and so we, we really need to know that. We need to understand that. Uh, but anyway, that being said, so the nations mourn when they see Christ coming because they realize he's come to take what they have been trying to take from him. But he comes to reclaim that which is his. The redemption is not just mankind, but even the earth ultimately experiences. And that's why uh, this, this, um, uh, Paul would say that even the creation groans, longing to see the, the redemption uh, take place. And so, <clears throat> um, um, okay, so, uh, so the nations mourn. And then again, Israel mourns because they recognize now that their Messiah, whom they've rejected, is now coming back. And so they will believe in him ultimately through this. Uh, and Israel will be saved. And so, but they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, even as he said in verse 27, as lightning flashes from the east to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Everybody will see it. Everybody will know it. For all of the false Christs that try to mislead people away into believing in them and their false gospels, when Jesus comes, there will be no mistaking it. Everybody will know. It will be dramatic on the on a, on a, on a scale that is hitherto been unknown and is going to be hard to even describe. Verse 31, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, here's this word elect again. Now, we know that, again, um, I've been trying to make the point that uh, Matthew 24 is dealing with Israel. And the elect that are in view here, some people have a real hang-up with the idea that the elect is being used here, and because the elect often speaks of the church, However, the elect just simply means chosen ones or those set apart. Uh, the idea that, and, 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 uh, uh, and this concept runs through Scripture, not just the New Testament. And so the concept of the elect, as a matter of fact, you see this come through in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is, by the way, the Bible that was used by the New Testament authors primarily. Um, you see this concept of being separated to God and the elect and this idea. It's not just a church idea. It's actually an idea that simply means of those that God has chosen. Uh, so, of course, the chosen people are his chosen, and he is going to fulfill his promise to them, um, not just in terms of spiritual Israel and, and believers coming by faith, but also ethnically Israel, the idea that they will see their kingdom come uh, as promised. And so he gathers the elect. As he comes, Remember, the persecution against them has been profound under Antichrist. But when he comes, when Jesus returns, he will gather his elect together and they will enter the millennial kingdom. And again, who is primarily in view in this passage is Israel, because this is a fulfilling of the promises that have been made to them. And they are now ultimately going to enter in, even as it says. Now, the fact that this would focus on Israel primarily should not be surprising and that it continues to focus on Israel should not be surprising. 
Um, matter of fact, in the next passage, we see a, um, a, a, a passage that very clearly, even, um, even people who see the church evident in Matthew 24 will come to this passage and say, okay, well, this is clearly Israel in view here. Verse 32, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, <coughs> excuse me, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Sorry, my voice has just been very dry for a little bit. Um, okay, so learn this parable from the fig tree. Now, very rightly, um, there is seen in this a connection with Israel because Israel is referred to this way very, at various points in, in, in the Old Testament. And so to, to see that Jesus would be continuing to focus on Israel through these words, again, makes perfect sense. Again, this entire sermon has a very Israel-centric uh, flavor to it throughout, whether it's pray or escape doesn't have to happen on the Sabbath, the abomination of desolation, all these different things. These are extremely Jewish pointing things. And the fig tree is similar, similarly so. And he, he says, <coughs> when you see the fig tree and its branch becomes tender, it puts forth its leaves. In other words, when the spring has come and, and the fig tree does what it does, you see that summer is near. In other words, you can tell the time that you're in based on what's happening on the fig tree. So, metaphorically, this is why we often say, if you want to know where we are in the prophetic timetable, watch Israel. Whether it has to do with Ezekiel 38 and 39, whether it has to do with the temple being, discussions of the temple being built, whether it has to do with Israel receiving an Antichrist as her Messiah, um, you know, whether it, it, all the different elements that can deal, that, that revolve around God's dealing with Israel, keep an eye on those things and you'll begin to understand where you are on the prophetic timetable. For example, every time you hear about Israel wanting nukes and, and, and its proxies uh, trying to um, coalesce to, to launch attacks from anywhere uh, in, uh, by Damascus and stuff like that, and Israel striking back at those things, um, watch those things because Ezekiel 38 and 39 are going to happen out of that. That's going to precipitate that. So be mindful of that. Now, that being said, there comes a, another passage here that is one of great discussion, contention, debate, discussional. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near, or uh, some early manuscripts say he is near, even at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this gener in other words, the coming of Christ is soon. Or, uh, if, if, if the word is really intended to be translated it, that means that the full unfolding all these things, if the word is meant to be translated he, and again, there's some discussion on to how that's to be translated. If it's he, then it's, it's speaking about Jesus, is speaking of himself in the third person, the coming of, you know, his second coming in that. But in connection, he goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. This generation. Now, this is where the contention, debate, and discussions all come to, are, are rooted around. What does this generation mean? Well, there are a couple of possibilities, uh, a couple of strong contenders for what this means. Uh, one is that uh, when you see the nation of Israel come back into the land, the idea of the, 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 uh, the branch becoming tender, putting forth leaves, 
Some see in the idea of this generation being connected with that event, the idea of Israel coming back into the land, um, you know, flowering and that sort of thing. And of course, when you look at 1948 and, and the nation of Israel being restored, it becomes a nation again, albeit an unbelief, but it becomes a nation nonetheless. Um, you see that the, the, the land itself, they, they, you know, they plant all their eucalyptus trees that suck up all the swamp waters and everything, and the land going from being this, on the one hand, deserty, on the other hand, swampy. It's just, it's not a land you can do much with, but it's precious to Israel, historically. It's their national homeland. And so they make efforts to basically revive the land, and it becomes one of, this, one of the, these beautiful, fruitful areas. It's an oasis in the middle of the Mid- Middle East in, in many respects. As a matter of fact, I think it's, it's, it's uh, production of oranges and stuff is like third in the world or something like that. I forget exactly what it is. Somebody will be able to fill that in on the comments, I'm sure. But it's become a massively fruitful, beautiful land. There's still lots of desert areas and stuff like that. But it is a beautiful, beautiful land. I've actually been there. I can testify to that. It's, it's uh, what they've done is extraordinary. And so the connection is made that when you see the, the nation come back into the land, this is the generation that will ultimately see all these things come to be. This, you know, uh, this generation will not pass till all these things are fulfilled. Meaning that somebody born in 19, a Jew born in 1948 or a person born in 1948, really, not just a Jew, but people that were born in 1948, the last person of that generation will not die off until all these things come to be. That's the way one interpretation of that is. The other interpretation, and I will admit this is more Rylene on this. I, I'm I'm a big hoper that that other one is true. I you know because people born in 1948 now are you know getting on 80 years old and stuff, and so that generation is dying off, which means hey maybe we're, that's true. However. Um, I think the text doesn't necessitate that because that would imply that what is in view in verse 32 has to be the nation coming back. It does. The verse doesn't necessarily imply that. It just simply means that when you see things going on around Israel, even if we, if we take it at its most basic uh, explanation, it simply speaks of when you see certain things happening, you know that a certain season is upon us, and so therefore you know these things are coming. If we take a next level step and say, well, okay, let's say it's Israel, things happening around Israel, that's an indicator. I think at least that's true. Or if we go the full, you know, the full other interpretation and say, well, when Israel becomes a nation, you know, um, um, but the verse doesn't necessarily lean on one of, of any of those three. We can see that in there, but it doesn't absolutely tell us that that's what that means. Um, So any of those three interpretations really can be true. Now, as it turns out, based on the time, and and by the way, the other interpretation, I should say, is that generation that sees these things happening is the generation that will not pass away until all these things come to be. So again, there's, there's basically three kinds of ideas, two to three ideas basically on what's going on here, what could be in view. As it turns out, the way things are going in the Middle East and the way things have been continuing to escalate between um, Israel and Iran and her proxies, uh, the way things, um, the tentative sort of relationship with, um, with Russia and Russia's desire, Putin in particular, his desire to sort of be the um, you know, sort of the broker in the Middle East, um, 
along with his other alliances with China and other things like that, as they begin to sort of, um, you know, kind of uh, intermingle and that kind of thing, we're moving in a way that would seem to indicate that we're not we're not much more than a hair trigger's, you know, breath away from this stuff exploding. We've actually, in, in recent years, seen the Middle East explode in a way that we really could very well have been minutes from Ezekiel 38 and 39 happening. So as it turns out, all three of those possibilities could be true right now at the same time, as it turns out. You know, there is still people around from 1948, and so we're within that generation. Um, the fact that Israel uh, is flowering again and has, be- has become, you know, there's things happening there, uh, prophetically speaking, puts us in a place where, wow, okay, this could happen. All of this could be true at the same time, uh, which would not surprise me one bit. Um, now, to end our thing today, let me just bring it around and, and finish with verse 35. We'll cover the rest of the sermon uh, next time, or in the next one or two uh, episodes where we talk about it. But Notice again in verse 35, we've, we've quoted this previously, but we've now come to it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In other words, every, you know, the, the odds of what I'm saying not coming to be are, uh, are zero. It will absolutely come to be. There is no chance that this will not come to be. Heaven and earth themselves will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, of course, as it turns out, heavens and earth will pass away with a fervent heat, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, uh, ultimately, as we see in the book of Revelation coming to pass, after all the events that happen in judgment on the earth finish, and the coming of kingdom of Christ is there for a thousand years, Satan's rebellion after that ultimately is put down, and then we see a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and all these things. So it's um, there is much yet to come, and we still have a lot of ground to cover in our study on eschatology. But uh, we'll be in, in uh, Matthew 24, again, for at least one more, maybe two episodes Uh, And then we'll kind of begin to look at some other passages as we continue down our discussion on how things will unfold in the days ahead. So um, if you have questions or thoughts or concerns about any of that, I certainly would invite you to share them. I love hearing from you and engaging with you. Uh, Chances are some of your questions will be addressed on our episodes as we make our way through, because if you're thinking it, someone else is probably thinking it too. So we'll try and make sure we address those things to try and do our best to bring some clarity to things. All right. Well, Father, thank you again for giving us a chance to open up your word and to consider what it's telling us, uh, that we might consider the time in which we're living and where we are. So we thank you and praise you that you have a glorious uh, plan that is unfolding and will ultimately reach its culmination. Surely, even as Jesus said, his words will never pass away. So we know these things are sure. So help us to be prepared to face each day, knowing that one day we'll see you face to face. One day we'll be in your presence. One day Jesus soon will come and bring his bride home and we will forever be with our Lord. And so in the days that remain, help us to be mindful, focused, anticipating, excited, uh, growing increasingly detached from the things of this life, knowing that ultimately we were called and made and, and, uh, and created truly for another. And we look forward to being in that place with you. Uh, and so, Father, thank you. We praise you, bless you, glorify you, and look forward to seeing you. In Jesus' name, amen.